Esther chapter 1. We're going to be going through verses 3 and 4 of that chapter. And while you're turning there, it's been five weeks since we have actually worshipped together as a body. It's been five weeks since we've heard the scripture read together. It's been five weeks since we've heard the, the voices filling this space together. Five weeks since we sat together here and heard the preached word. Five weeks. And while I praise God for the technology that God has given us to allow us to do this, this is indeed a poor substitute that we are experiencing, isn't it? I look out at a sanctuary of of mostly empty pews and I'm reminded of how much how much I miss you. I just want you to know how much I miss you. And I can't wait to be back in fellowship with you again. Let's pray that it's much sooner than later. Now look with me at the one thing that can calm my heart, (laughs) but that can calm all of our hearts and bring unity despite being scattered, and that is the balm of God's word. Look with me at verses 3 and 4 in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I chose this text for actually a couple reasons. First, it's part of our congregational memory verse, as you know. This is something that we are memorizing together as a body. And it's a great way that I feel that we can be connected even though we're scattered. We are memorizing this and hiding God's, this, this part of God's word in our hearts together. So it's a good reminder. As you say those words at home, know that others are saying those same words at home and be encouraged. Also, this is a glorious text, isn't it? My goodness, did you, did you hear what's contained in here? The sovereignty of God in salvation. God's incredible mercy that is a a part of his character, Christ's powerful resurrection, and of course, our future inheritance. The entire gospel in those few few verses right there. And the gospel always gives hope. Remember that, brothers and sisters. The gospel always gives hope. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, according, blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Underline that word hope if you're a Bible underliner. For that is what these verses give us. These verses give us hope. That's the central message that Peter wants to, to give us. That's what he intends for his original audience to get out of these first wonderful verses in his letter to them. Because they were discouraged. His original audience was discouraged. If you look back up at verse 1, you see who Peter was writing to and, and what he was writing about. 
In verse 1, we see Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia. I like how the NIV words it a little better. To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter bursts out into the gospel because the people he's writing to are discouraged. The people he's writing to are disheartened. They're disheartened for two reasons. One is that they are strangers in the world. Did you hear it? God's elect. Strangers or exiles in the world. As God's elect, as Christ followers, we are strangers in this world. I mean, it says that that's the uniform uh, description of us throughout the New Testament. We are strangers in the world. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room that night, we are not of this world, thus you will be hated. Paul told the Philippians, listen, your citizenship is not in Rome. Your citizenship is in heaven. And the writer of the Hebrews calls us strangers and exiles on earth in chapter 11. And being a stranger can be discouraging. I mean, I remember when I lived in Japan when I was 22 and 23 years old teaching English. It was an exciting time in my life. I mean, Tokyo is an exciting place as a young man to be. But I was, I was thousands of miles from home. I was in, in, a, in a culture where every custom, every cultural custom was different. It was a language that, that I couldn't even make out a word. You know how sometimes you go to France or to Italy and, and you can catch a word because it's kind of similar to our word? None of their words are. And on top of that, you look totally different. You stand out like a sore thumb. And I, many times, I never felt more like a stranger. I never felt more discouraged than that time in my life. Being a stranger can be hard. And believers are strangers in this world. So Peter is writing to, to encourage them, to give them hope because they're strangers. The second reason he's writing is because they're, they're scattered. Did you see the word there? Scattered throughout Pontius. Scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. These are little churches. The size of ours are smaller. That are scattered throughout a place the size of Texas. And they're alone against this world. Being scattered is hard. I mean, we're experiencing that right now, aren't we, brothers and sisters? We're scattered. The body of Southwest Harbor Congregational Church is scattered because of the coronavirus. And so all the wonderful benefits of community are lost. And there are many. The sweet fellowship we share. I mean, there's, there's seven or eight people in the, in the, in the church right now, and, and I'm just soaking it up. Because there's seven or eight of us here. That sweet fellowship is lost. The encouragement and the admonishment and the accountability that we have with each other. The empathy and the compassion that only comes through being together. 
There's only so much you can say over the phone or over Zoom. The connectedness we feel to God when we actually celebrate the Lord's table together, which we haven't in weeks and weeks and probably won't in weeks and weeks more. And we cannot gather to do the one thing we were created to do, that we were saved to do, and that is worship God as a body. What we're doing right now is nice, and I'm grateful for the ability that we have to do it, but it's not ecclesia. It's not the gathering. It can never substitute for the physical gathering. Remember that, brothers and sisters. Because in the days and years and weeks to come, and weeks and years to come, there will be a push to, to go more virtual. We can never give this up. Never. Thus, we can't do the main purpose that God saved us for, to glorify him by worshiping him physically together. COVID-19 has made sure of that. How long will it be? We don't know. And that can create a sense of hopelessness over time, can it? A sense of discouragement, of even despair. And so we run to Peter to give us encouragement and hope. We run to these verses this morning. And the hope that Peter extends to those scattered strangers is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. After his introduction in verse 3, Peter launches right into the cause of our hope, the guarantee of our hope, and the future of our hope. And that's our outline this morning. The cause, the assurance, and the future of our hope. First, the cause of our hope. Look with me again at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We have hope because God is merciful. Let me say that again. We have hope because God is merciful. Our hope is born out of God's mercy. That's what Peter is saying here. God is merciful. That's one of his attributes. That's part of his character. He can't not be merciful. We can do that, but God cannot do that. I remember about 25 or 30 years ago, I had to go into New York City on business, so I took the train in. And it was a beautiful day, so I I walked from Grand Central Station up Fifth Avenue some 20 blocks to where I had to go. Several blocks in, I glanced over to one side and I saw this, this homeless man, this dirty homeless man crumpled up in a, in a, in a corner. And he had a, a little uh, cardboard sign that he had scribbled on that was dirty and bent. And he had it propped up against him. And it read, please help me, I have AIDS. Do you know what I did? Nothing. Nothing. I kept walking. Now, why do I remember this occasion? 25, 30 years later, why do I remember that? I remember this because about a block later, I started weeping. I had compassion. I felt the emotions. I felt merciful. But did those emotions help that man? Nope. Now consider God. 
God is merciful. He cannot be unmerciful. Because he is so merciful, he is impelled to action. He has to act. And that should give us hope. That should give us hope. That's why Psalm 136 is in the canon, isn't it? It's to remind us that God's mercy endureth forever. It recounts all the great acts of God in the history of Israel. And the question that is asked again and again and again is, why did God do these things? And the answer is, because his mercy endures forever. He looked down and remembered us in our low estate, it says. His mercy caused him to act and rescue us from the predicament that we are in because of our sin. His great mercy caused him to send his only son to be born under the law. That's what Galatians 4, 4 tells us. Christ was born under the law. Christ put himself under the law that he actually instituted. Isn't that amazing for us? To live a perfectly righteous life under that law. To live perfectly, not sin in word, thought, and deed. Thus earning salvation, something that you and I can never do. And he willingly went to the cross out of mercy. Willingly taking the full wrath of God. Those bowls that we read about in fear, when we read about in in Revelation, pouring out. They poured out on Christ. Willingly paying the penalty for our sin. Willingly spilling his blood instead of ours. So that we might be saved. On the corner of the square of a square in Rotterdam, Holland, there once stood a house known as the House of Terrors. The name comes from the 16th century when King Philip II of Spain was systematically murdering Christians in Rotterdam. Spanish troops went house to house, searching out believers and killing them. In this one particular house, a handful of men, women, and children heard the soldiers approaching. They heard the pounding on the doors near them, the screams of victims as they died and the feet marching closer and closer and closer to their house. But a young man suddenly had an idea. He took a goat and he killed it. And he swept the goat's blood under the door, the front door. When the soldiers reached the house, they saw the blood trickling out from underneath the door and assumed the soldiers had already gotten to this house and went on their way. 2,000 years ago, Jesus' blood was spilled. The question we all have to answer is this. Has his blood been swept under your door? Have you trusted Jesus' blood to pardon the soldier of death? to pardon your sins. If you have not, I want to invite you to trust in him this day, right now. I don't know if you're not a Christian, why you're on this streaming service, but I praise God you are, because this is meant for you. 
Simply close your eyes and tell him that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. And ask for forgiveness. And then turn and trust Jesus. Trust that he died in your place, that he paid the penalty for your sins on that cross. That his blood will be swept under your door. And your sins will be forgiven. But there's one more thing you must believe to have eternal life. And that is that he rose from the dead. Because the resurrection is the guarantee of our salvation. And that's our second point. The resurrection is the guarantee of our hope. Listen again. Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No resurrect, the resurrection guarantees our salvation. No resurrection, no forgiveness. No resurrection, no salvation. No resurrection, no eternity. No resurrection, no Christianity. That's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter to them in chapter 15. He writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And we are to be pitied more than all men. You see, in Jesus' death on the cross, he took the penalty for our sins. He absorbed the wrath of God for our sins. He paid the debt that we created. But in the resurrection resides the power that guarantees that salvation. That's what Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to how Paul writes to the Romans about it in Romans 6. If we were therefore buried with him through the baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Did you hear it? We will certainly be raised from the dead also because Christ has been raised from the dead. New Testament professor David Turner of Cornerstone University writes, The resurrection amounts to the Father's clear signal that Jesus is the powerful Son of God who has conquered death and reigns as Lord of all. The resurrection demonstrates that Jesus' blood of the new covenant saves his people from their sins. The resurrection is where our assurance of salvation resides. If you know the group Casting Crowns, they got their lyrics from Romans, their, their lyrics for O Glorious Day from Romans 4.25, which reads this, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And they wrote these lyrics, Living he loved me, Dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away, rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day. Jesus' resurrection is where our assurance and our guarantee resides. It's where our hope comes from, is in the resurrection. No resurrection, no assurance. No resurrection, no hope. 
That's why Jesus asked that's the why Jesus asked the question to Martha in front of her dead brother's tomb. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And then he asked that question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus' guarantee of salvation is embedded in the cement of his resurrection. The only hope we get from this life to the next is by trusting that Jesus rose from the dead. James Bedford was a psychology professor at the University of California, and he became the first person to ever be cryogenically frozen. His hope was that his body could be repaired and his consciousness revived with more advanced technology in the future. Bedford willed $100,000 for the preservation of his body. However, when he died in 1967, of a young, in a young age, it caught everyone off guard. Bedford's nurse reportedly ran up and down the block collecting ice from neighbors' freezers to keep his body cold until the Life Extension Society could take his body. After 50 years, the cost of preserving his body had exhausted the $100,000 that he had put away. Frustrated by the high cost of storage, Bedford's son moved his father's body into a self-storage unit and topped off the container with liquid nitrogen from time to time. Bedford's body is currently at Alcor Life Extension Foundation with 300 other bodies and brains, all hoping that in the future they will be raised from the dead. All those people are hoping that science and technology will someday come to a place where they can repair their bodies, where they can bring them back to life. It's, it's a shot in the dark. It's a chance. They're, they're wishful thinking that in the future they will be brought back to life, that they will continue to live. Not so for the Christian. Our hope is sure because Christ did come back from the dead. And because of that, you too will live. That's the guarantee. Jesus' resurrection gives us a hope and a future. And that's our last point today. Our future hope. Because of what Christ accomplished, we have a future inheritance. Look with me again at our verse. Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, when the Bible talks about inheritance, I think a future inheritance, I think it, it, it's talking about it in two different ways. There are at least two meanings that, that the Bible talks about this in. There is what the Bible speaks about as reward, right? That's what we read about very often in the New Testament. Colossians 3.23 encourages us, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not the human masters. Since you know that you receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. 
And as we talked about in last week's sermon, this reward should change us, right? This future inheritance should have an effect on us right now. That's, that's what Paul is writing the, to the Corinthians saying, to the Colossians saying. It should change us. Tim Keller illustrates this well when he writes, Imagine you're a billionaire and you have three $10 bills in your wallet. You get out of a cab and you hand the, the cabbie one of those $10 for an $8 fare and tell him to keep the change. Later that day, you look in and find out that there's only one $10 bill in your wallet. And you say to yourself, I either dropped that second $10 bill or I overpaid the cabbie. I gave him two $10 bills instead of one. As a billionaire, what are you going to do at that moment? Are you going to get all upset? Are you going to call the police and have this cabbie tracked down? No. As a billionaire, you shrug off the $10. So what? You're, you're way too rich to be concerned about that little, little slice of, of the pie. This week, somebody criticizes you. Something you bought or invested in turned out to be less valuable than you thought. Something you wanted to happen didn't go the way you wanted to. These are, these are all real losses. But what are you going to do if you're a Christian? Will, you, will this setback disrupt your contentment in life? Will you shake your fist at God, toss and turn at night? If so, Keller says, I submit that it's because you don't know how truly rich you are. If you're that upset about your status with other people, if you're constantly lashing out at people because they hurt your feelings, you might call it a lack of self-control or a lack of self-esteem, and it, and it is. But more fundamentally, you've totally lost touch with your identity. As a Christian, you're a spiritual billionaire, and you're wringing your hands $10. Peter tells us here that we have an imperishable, undefilable, unfading inheritance that's kept safe in heaven for you. It's not going anywhere. You're a spiritual billionaire. And that should change the way you react to things. And so that's one way that, that the inheritance should, should, we should think about in the inheritance here. But I think there's another inheritance waiting for us. And I think the parable of the talents help us to see this. You know the story. A master leaves his three servants and he gives them all um, some money. And then he goes away and, and one of the servants buries the money and the other two servants make the money work. And the master comes back and calls for them to give an account. And the first one comes that buried it, and and he calls him wicked for burying it. And do you remember what the master said to the other two servants when they came and said, you gave me three, here's three more. You gave me five, here's five more. Do you remember what he said to them? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful, faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
I think there's a key right there of what our inheritance is. Our future inheritance, in a large part, is the joy of being in the presence of our master. It's the joy of being in the presence of Christ. Our reward is being with the one who loves you the most. Our inheritance is Christ himself. Our joy is basking in his presence forever and being totally, fully satisfied in that. But that kind of joy reward is sometimes hard to grasp now, isn't it? It kind of slips through our fingers pretty easily. How can just being with Christ be so so satisfying when I find it hard to, to read the Bible? It sits for days on end without me opening it. How can I, how can I be totally satisfied with Christ when I, when I struggle in my prayer life so much? How can I have this amazing joy when I struggle to get up in the morning and come and spend an hour and a half worshiping him? Steve DeWitt wrote in his book, Eyes Wide Open, Enjoying God in Everything. What he says is helpful here when he writes, This world and its history are preludes and foretastes. All the sunrises and sunsets, all the symphonies and rock concerts, all the feasts and friendships are but whispers. They are a prologue to a grander and even better place. Only there it will never end. Walt Disney's made a fortune on this theme of giving us glimpses of this forever joy. In the end of most of their movies, things seem to work out perfectly, don't they? The father finds Nemo and they go back to the safety of their home and they live together forever. And Meet the Robinsons, the orphan becomes a son and he lives forever with his beloved family. The little mermaid becomes truly human and is united with the one she loves forever. Cinderella is rescued and reunited with the one, the prince that loves her and they live together forever. The beast is transformed and gets to be with beauty forever. Does this sound familiar? The future joy is being with the one we love forever. And that is what Peter means when he says, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Think of it. Christ is in heaven just waiting for you. Our reward, our inheritance is being united with Christ, the one we love forever. J.I. Packer says it so well. Hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this to ever end. But in, it invariably does. Hearts in heaven say, I want this to go on forever. And it will. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, I pray that this word will 
bury itself deep in our minds, in our hearts. Help us to be changed by it. Spirit, enable these words to be powerful and effective. Help them to mold us and shape us and sculpt us. Help, help it to soften our hearts where it's hard. Help it to get into the deep, dark crevices of our minds that we keep locked away from you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.